0: Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Just Work podcast. I am Kim Scott, your co-host, and I'm here with
1: Wesley Faulkner, the other co-host, and we have a guest today. Uh, Omar, could you introduce yourself?
2: Sure. My name is Omar Gayaga. I am a freelance journalist in Central Texas. I worked at a newspaper for many, many years, for about 21 years at the Austin American Statesman. And these days, uh, I'm freelancing for Wired and Level Magazine and a bunch of other places, mostly covering tech and culture. So those are sort of my wheelhouses. I'm very happy to be here. Thanks for having me.
0: We are thrilled to have you. It's a little bit scary for me to read something for, for a writer as experienced as you are, but I'm going to do the reading. I'm going to overcome my fears, and I'm going to rely on, uh, on you to be radically candid about what you think about these paragraphs.
2: I've read it. It's really good. Keep <laughs> do, what you do what you do. It's great. I'm
0: sure you can make it better. And I'm editing. Just so you know, I'm editing the paperback, so your, your thoughts will have an impact. Uh, And I will apologize in advance. I may cough. And that is one of the beautiful things about not being in the same room together. It won't matter. All right. Here we go. Prejudice, meaning it. Respond with an it statement. Prejudice, unlike bias, is a conscious belief, usually incorporating an unfair and inaccurate stereotype. People of one race are inferior or superior one gender tends to be better or worse leaders. People of a given generation are slower or faster on the uptake, wiser or more foolish. People don't change their prejudices simply because someone points them out with an I statement. Holding up a mirror tends not to work. When confronting prejudice, it's useful instead to draw a clear boundary A person can believe whatever they want, but they cannot impose their beliefs on others. People at work cannot do or say whatever they want. An it statement can offer that boundary by appealing to the law and HR policy or to common sense. For example, it is against the law slash an HR violation slash ridiculous to refuse to hire the most qualified candidate because of their hairstyle or any other identity attribute. Leaders need to create a space for conversation so that the team understands where the boundary is between one person's freedom to believe what they want, but not to impose those beliefs on others. Leaders are responsible for setting and communicating clear expectations about the boundaries of acceptable behavior at work. Easier said than done. So what do you all think? Lay it on me. Omar, let's start with you.
2: Sure. Yeah. I mean, as a journalist, as a Latino journalist uh, who's been uh, covering areas like Austin, Texas for for many, many years. I mean, yeah, I, I encounter this all the time, um, and not always in a, in an overt way. I mean, we, you mentioned yeah. unconscious bias, which which I've been doing some training uh, with a lot of newsrooms and for for pointer uh, along those lines. So a lot of it is getting people to realize like where those unconscious biases are and how they come into play in newsrooms, but the overt way we see it is a lot of times from, from our audiences, from people who we're serving. Um, you know, they, in my case, I have a name, Omar Gayaga, that is clearly ethnic. It's not, you know, it's clearly I'm something. People don't always uh, assume that I'm Latino. They, they think, oh, is he Arab? Is he this? Is he that? But they know I'm something. So I would always get a lot of blowback sometimes of like, well, obviously you're, you know, you were a Brown person. You think this, or you clearly you're liberal because that, Um, And, you know, I, as working in a newsroom, working in news and entertainment, I was always, you know, obviously trying to be objective, trying to put forth the, the persona of like, no, I'm an unbiased journalist, I'm just here to tell both sides. And i think we've come to find over time um in the news industry that that is very damaging to do the both sides reporting where both yeah. sides are right let's hear both their <laughs> you know both of their opinions they they both have equal weight no 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 wow. that's not always true um so i we're, we've had a big shift in journalism just in the in the time that i've been in and, I, and i've been in the industry for a good 30 plus years uh, and I've seen that big shift of, you know, no, we're objective. We don't judge. We're in the middle. It's like that doesn't work. And, and that leads to a lot of ugly, you know, th- which we've seen in the last, you know, 10, 15 years in covering politics and covering uh, issues like Black Lives Matter. We, we just see where the, the breakdown of that idea of the objective omniscient news organization that has really broken down. So I, I've seen a lot of change in my in my business uh, with how we cover the news and how we address audiences that that are that can be abusive, a lot of times we we get abuse from our audiences directly to the reporters, you know, who are really just the messengers. So I, I've seen it from a lot of different angles, and I continue to see it even as a freelancer uh, as I'm doing these trainings around the country with different newsrooms. You know, they, I still hear horror stories of, of what reporters have to deal with, and increasingly, it's getting physically threatening. You know, reporters are now in a position where if they're covering things people don't like, they are physically threatened, you know, and it's, it's gotten much more abusive. And and I've seen people leave the industry because of that.
0: And do you think so it's gotten, um, first of all, I'm sorry, uh, yeah. uh, the, the, uh, you know, the, what journalists do is they, they make the world more just by asking hard questions and, and shedding light on things that, uh, that, that need to be noticed and that often aren't noticed. So, um, <clears throat> I'm sorry and uh I wish I could make it I wish I could make it go away overnight. Um one of the questions I had for you and then I think Wesley was going to say something which I interrupted. I'm sorry Wesley. But one of the questions I have for you and this is something I've struggled with a bunch is that the you know there's a big difference between bias and prejudice. And I think it's important to recognize not everything is unconscious bias. Sometimes there is conscious prejudice. And I think we were reluctant to notice that. We have been as a society, uh, sort of in the last, well, probably always. But for a while, the, uh, the prejudices were just acceptable. And now they're not acceptable. So to what extent do you think that journalists are getting bullied more or physically assaulted more because it is more acceptable in the last say few years to to state these prejudices like there's there's risk in they're being hidden but there's also risk in their and they're not being hidden How, where do you come down on that one
2: yeah, I I mean certainly in the last I would say 10 12 years that that the all the stuff that that used to be sort of under the surface that people were afraid to say or were unwilling to say because of, of the stigma of it they'd get they'd get you know attacked or shut down um they've become emboldened you know the the climate has changed and people who have sort of hateful views prejudice views um, are emboldened because they see other people like them saying the same things online or or at rallies or wherever. And, you know, the elephant in the room is, you know, the ascendancy of, of the Donald Trump candidacy where he was actively attacking reporters, actively saying they are enemies of the state. I mean, that was a huge deal in my industry is, is for a president, a sitting president, you know, a presidential candidate and a sitting president to say, you are the enemy. The fourth estate is the enemy of, you know, of the country. It's like, what? <laughs> you know, that really put a target on our backs. And I, I don't, you know, I've seen a lot of stories sort of charting that of like, what was the increase in violence against journalists after that, uh, where it became acceptable to see journalists as the enemy and journalists as, um, you know, opponents, political opponents. So it, it definitely has become more dangerous. I mean, it, journalism has always been dangerous around the world, you know, especially when there's wars, when there's conflict, uh, when people's lives are at stake and you're on battlefields and and covering things that are life and death. But now it's dangerous just doing the daily, covering politics and doing daily coverage. And and we didn't, you know, we didn't have that so much in this country for a long time. And we journalists have always been in danger when they're covering dangerous subjects. Uh, But now you can just be you be endangered just by nature of your job, just by nature of being a journalist. Doesn't even matter what beat you're on. Um, people find out you work at a TV station or a mm-hmm. newspaper. Suddenly, you're you're an enemy. So that that's what's changed uh, for a lot of us. And and some of the training work that I do, in addition to the stuff about the DEI subjects and and unconscious bias, is also training on trauma. I think that's another thing that we haven't really dealt with very well in the industry, and we're just we're a slow industry. <laughs> we're, we're slow to adapt uh, and and have been historically. And it's only in recent years that we've come to recognize this is not only dangerous uh, as a job, it's also traumatic. You deal with a lot of firsthand and secondhand trauma just in reporting on these subjects, just by exposing yourself to these subjects, as, even as an editor or a line editor. So I think we're coming into an understanding of not only is it dangerous and low pain, you also have to deal with, with trauma. So that it's a... Not not a super attractive industry when you know if you're telling young people like what to do with their lives, but um, but there are a lot of. I think it's still vitally important that we have a strong uh, journalism industry. I think it's still crucial uh, to our democracy.
0: Totally, totally agree. Democracy depends on it.
1: Mm-hmm. Absolutely. I I wanted to just chime in about the the reading um, and bring up two points and then one point. Uh, Piggybacking off what Omar said, is that first one I wanted to say thank you about the part about you can't hire, uh, you you can't choose not to hire someone because someone's hairstyle. I think that was a specific call out to me. So thank you for including that in that section. The second thing is that um, when you're talking about saying you cannot do this because of this, um, that cause and effect, it's, it's almost like you're lending authority to yourself in order to say that you can't, uh, what I'm saying is not something you need to argue with me about, it's the law, or it's the policy, or it's that the thing that is knowable, unchangeable, and fixed, um, which allows the, the argument to kind of like not happen, because it's not you who's saying you can't do this, it is this other authority that is bigger than both of you at the time, which I think is a Awesome technique because it can kind of like make sure that those headbutting, drag down arguments about it's your opinion as opposed to it's your opinion uh, it can help move those away or d- deflate those because you are speaking about something that you both can verify outside of each other, which is really, really great. Um, yeah, because
0: yes. I rarely want to have an argument with someone about their prejudice. Yeah. I mean, there are times maybe if I really love the person and I care enough about, but I have to care super deeply about someone uh, outside of their their prejudice. And it's it and frankly, it's hard to care deeply about someone who has a who has a prejudice that I vehemently disagree with. So, uh, so, so that's a, you're exactly right. That's part of the reason yeah. for the it statement. Like, I'm not going to argue with you about your belief. I'm not going to ask you to argue with me about my belief, but. You know, here's the yeah. rules.
1: Yes, exactly. And it doesn't resort to name calling or any ad hominem attacks, which is great. Um, and the thing that um, what Omar was saying that reminded me um, is that I've been rewatching the, the Marvel Cinematic Universe with my kid because they're now older. And we just recently watched uh, Captain America Winter Soldier, which is the, the movie in which you hear or you find out that there are agents of Hydra embedded in S.H.I.E.L.D. And I would say that around 2016 and the campaign and Trump becoming uh, president kind of made it feel that way, where I was working with people and then it would just come up where like, you believe what now? <laughs> and, and, and 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 just being surprised that people that I thought I knew or were uh, would were allies of of me like existing or flourishing yeah we started adopting and actually spewing and sharing some of these thoughts and it is really sad about how the overton window kind of shifted and i'm also seeing that same shift in this current election or campaign cycle where uh, the 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 governor of florida is saying basically that trump was in terms of like uh, gay rights or, or um, rights of people who identify as LGBTQ plus um, how he was too liberal. And there should be like zero quarter for those who are uh, in that camp. And it's just like one of those things where it's like, oh my gosh. And double down, tripling down and just saying, I was absolutely right. And, and Omar, you just wrote the story about, how there's conversation where it's like, is white supremacy bad? I don't, I don't, I don't know. Um, and it's just like, why are we having these conversations that should have been settled? Well, it
2: definitely yeah. feels like a rollback. It feels like, like yeah. we made a lot of progress for you know decades, and now all of a sudden a lot of that is being rolled back. And we didn't think we could be rolled back. We were like, we are we're already here. How can we go backwards? And apparently there's groups that have found ways to 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 kind of push us backwards and say, no, 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 we're gonna progress and go back to you know the way things were decades ago it's like okay well all right if that's uh what you want but yeah i I agree that that oftentimes it's it arguing the point um isn't uh as effective as just you know you can't then then bringing up the well it's illegal and here's why or it's you know it's against the rules and here's why i'm not going to argue with you about your fundamental beliefs because that that's unlikely to change yeah right
0: <clears throat> and I mean I think there is a time and a place to argue there's the there's a wonderful book called Rising Out of Hatred about uh about a guy who was a white nationalist and when he was I think the godson of David Duke or something and when he got to college people were horrified and there was a uh there was a Jewish guy in his class who invited him to Shabbat dinner and said uh, you know not not because he was a white nationalist himself but because he felt like uh, he he'd said his rabbi told him it's his, it was his job to push against the boulder, not his job to move the boulder. And so he said, "Well, I'm I'm not. My goal in this is not to change this person's beliefs, but just to present another worldview." And ultimately, this guy uh, left white nationalism and and has uh, s- spoken about it quite a lot. And it was it's it's interesting to think about like when is it worth it to to actually have the conversation with the person who has the prejudice versus just use the it statement and i think in general at work uh most of us most of us would prefer the it statement um but i don't, I don't know what do you all think
2: um yeah absolutely i, I think uh and and you know it, it tends to happen during tighter economic times where like people don't want to mess with their jobs they don't want to have to take a stand at work, you know. They they want to keep their jobs and not create conflict and not get caught up in a whole cycle of HR events and and you know in uh, potential lawsuits and whatever. It's like people don't want to mess with all that. They just want to do their jobs. So I th- I think um, when we're in these flush times, as we were a couple of years ago, where everybody was looking for workers and there was all this competition for tech jobs, uh, and the workers kind of had the advantage. Sure, you could bring these things up like I'm not gonna work in an environment like this. I'm not gonna do this, but then you know six months later, when there's tens of thousands of layoffs in the in the tech industry, you're lo- much less likely to speak up. You're much less likely to take a stand if if you feel like you're on the chopping block. so I, I think some of it uh, has to do with just the ups and downs of, of the the economy and whether people are feeling secure enough that and, and you know it, it, sometimes things like this come from a place of privilege. You know, yeah. if you're if you're secure in the idea that you're going to get another job and you'll be fine, you're much more likely to speak up than someone who uh, is historically disadvantaged and doesn't doesn't think they're going to have the same kind of opportunity. So I, th- I think there's definitely a racial component to it in some ways of like, am I comfortable enough that I that I'm insecure that I'm going to find another job that I can make that statement? You know, some people won't won't do it because of that.
0: Yeah,
1: absolutely right. Yeah. And and because of usually if you look at the power dynamic, usually the, the majority is in the power position and the person who is in the minority is probably in the less power position, which means it makes that confrontation so much harder. Uh, because if it was reversed, of course, it, it, the, the, the threat to the job, the threat to the position, the threat of advancement is less so so it is definitely a, a bit of a privileged position. And, and only if you feel like either you're secure, or you you have a mitigation strategy, or you have an ally to back you up, um, it can be really tricky and um, vulnerable to kind of have that kind of conversation.
0: Yeah, yeah, I think that's that's exactly right. And I think also I mean one of the moments when I decided to write Just Work was I was on I was on a panel with Sarah Kunst uh who is a black woman who who uh took on Dave McClure uh had a had a me too moment and I was we were talking in prep and I was kind of maybe advocating too much to be silent, you know, there's all these risks about this And Sarah looked at me and she said, you know what the problem here is, Kim? And I said, no. And she said, the problem, Kim, is that people will listen to you (laughs) and then they won't speak up. And she said, look at me. You know, is my life blown up? No, it is not. You know, I'm doing okay." And it really was striking to me because I agree. I realized she was right and I was wrong and it was really striking to me because i i frankly didn't have much to fear in speaking up actually when when i when various stuff had happened to me i could easily get another job and uh you know and i had been at google when i went public and so i had some savings to fall back on and and yet often i didn't speak up in despite the privilege and so i think that there's a <clears throat> there's a million pressures that that sort of have a lot of us defaulting to silence and that's one of the things I want to do is is change the default uh, and have the default to be to to choose your response at the very least and to speak up uh, especially to speak up if you have the wherewithal to speak up if you uh if you are are the beneficiary of, of various unfair advantages
2: and I, and I think it also has. It's not always along racial lines or or uh, minority lines. I mean, sometimes it's just seniority. I mean, I know that that I spend enough time in one place that after the first you know ten years of being there, I felt much more comfortable speaking up. I felt much more comfortable with my job security to be able to say, "Hey, I don't like this," or "This just doesn't feel right." Um, and I think the way to kind of do that for younger workers or workers who are who have less at ex- least less seniority is just to be their mentor you know to, to to take on mentoring uh and then when they tell you like hey this this really screwed up thing just happened advocate for them you know help help them speak up or or gonna have their back i mean i think that is crucially important i'm I'm finding more and more as i deal with young journalists who are you know in their early 20s and are just starting out there they have the same insecurities that i had when i was at that age but I think we're in a moment where they're much more able to do something about it. I never felt comfortable bringing things like that up. You know, This was the, the late 90s, early 2000s, and it just wasn't on people's radar. So I think for sure, um, you know, what, you, what, what can you do as, as if you're someone like me who is you know, in a senior position is mentor someone and, and advocate for them and help, help them navigate that.
0: Absolutely. And also help them understand what their, you know, where the boundary is. Like if it's, if they're confronting prejudice, what's the it statement they can use? What's the law? What's, cause often you don't know about the Crown Act, for example. It's illegal. It is illegal not to hire someone because of their hairstyle.
2: Yeah, and I and I think also people feel a little bit powerless when they're in those uh, kind of entry level positions, and I think it's really important to to help workers understand that no matter what where you are in an organization, you have some power. I, I we I, we do this in our trainings, where we we ask you know in a in a poll you know what kind of power do you think you have in the workplace, and one of the options is I have no power, and you'd be surprised how many people answer I have no power and we have to tell them no you do you do even if even the power to gossip in the workplace is a type of power <laughs> even the ability to make and break reputations by what you say in the workplace that's a type of power so i think people don't understand that they do have influence and power even at even at an entry level position
0: absolutely so I wonder, should we shift into storytelling? Omari, do you have a story? Do you have a story for us? Thank you both, by the way, for thoughts on this. I already have several edits. I'm going to go back and make some changes. But what about stories?
2: Um, yeah, I have one from when I was a very, very young journalist still in college uh, in Oklahoma. <laughs> it's a story. I, th- I think I, I spun a whole column out of it after it happened. I ended up writing about it and, and people were like, oh, wow. Uh, and it was just, it wasn't even a big deal to me until I really thought about it. It was, I was my, I think it was snowing and my car had, I would either locked my keys in my car or my car just wouldn't start. And I was at the newsroom. I, I worked at a at a college newspaper, the Oklahoma daily. And I think I had to call campus police to get, you know, a jumpstart or get help something to do with my car. I don't even remember what it was. It was so long ago. And I, uh, they were taking my information, you know, where's your car? Where where, where do we find you? Okay. What's your name? And I said, my name, Omar Gayaga. They said, Oh, wow. You speak really good English. I was like, what? I think I was so stunned. I think I said, thank you. (laughs) And I remember, you know, like not, I just wanted help. I just wanted somebody to come help me with my car. I needed to get home. Um, But, it wasn't until later that I kind of thought about it and I was like, that's pretty messed up. And what did that mean? And then I ended up writing a whole thing about it, kind of examining what, what all that meant. And I don't even know that it was overt prejudice or overt racism. Cause it didn't, it was, it didn't sound like it was coming from a bad place or from a mean place. The person was being very helpful. I think it was just it was a prejudice. It was like, oh, that's a foreign sounding name. How nice that he learned English. (laughs) I'm from Texas, dude. Yeah, yeah. I probably speak better English than you do. Uh, But uh, yeah, that was that was just a moment that I always stuck with me. Of like, it it doesn't even have to be mean prejudice. It doesn't even have to be um, prejudice with a harm with an intent to harm, but. It, it it you know this is clearly something that's in this person's head and that they learned somewhere so
0: and do you think that was prejudice or was it bias do you think i mean they gave voice to it but i think but, it's a
2: little of both but i but i think it, it it's prejudice in the sense that they that probably influences their actions in some way thinking that along those lines thinking that that foreign people or someone yeah. with a foreign name won't know english as well as as everybody else i think yeah. so they they mark your promise. car
1: as stolen <laughs> no. yeah I think an extreme
2: version of that would be because of that, I'm not going to hire you or because of that, because I think your English might be suspect.
0: Yeah, Um, then that that becomes discrimination if it's not hiring, if it's like marking your car is stolen. I mean, it becomes almost like a, well, it's some, some sort of violence almost.
2: Yeah, I could imagine the same person, you know, hiring for a position or being in some you know level of authority where they would where that could come into play you know and yeah or that, just that.
0: seeing seeing the name on the resume and not passing it on for even right. a, a, an interview
2: absolutely
1: or it's just yeah if you applied for maybe like a uh, an operator job and they saw your name then they might say well I'm not sure if they would be able to speak to people that call if they uh, maybe they have an accent if, uh, maybe they don't speak English so well. I, yeah, um, I, a, I a, yeah,
2: I have a friend who, uh, I have a friend who is a black woman who was applying for a bunch of jobs last year, you know, was, you know, in a, through a long period of unemployment. So she, I think she must've applied for at least 50 to hundred jobs. I mean, just applying and applying and applying and ended up at a really great company. But, you know, she would tell me these stories about, you know, because she had a very, she had a more unusual name than mine. I mean, it, her, her name was very unusual, uh, and, and, uh, she, she was from Nigeria and she, in almost every interview that would come up, like, so, so where are you from? <laughs> you know, like mm-hmm. trying to kind of fish for some information. you have a very unusual name? Where are you from? Where's that name come from? from? Uh, and in doing so, kind of putting it out there, like, well, maybe your English is not up to the mm-hmm. level that we need for this position. It's very, a lot of communication involved. So she would encounter that again and again, and again, to the point where she was thinking of submitting her resumes with a different name. Like that, that it got to that point where she was like, maybe I should just Susan Smith, you know, Uh,
0: that was the first thing that I thought as you started to tell the story. I was like, I wonder what would happen if she just changed her name on her resume.
2: She considered it, yeah. But I mean, she finally landed somewhere where they at a a company that really does value diversity and really does, you know, walk the walk on that. But before that, I mean, she went through so many companies that she that, that door was closed to her just based on her name.
1: Yeah, it's like a blessing in disguise but also like a curse because you you don't want to be a place where you're not wanted or you have to continuously fight the same battles. But at the same time you need to like eat and like have yeah. a roof over your head and participate in capitalism in order to survive. Um and so it's it's a thing where it's just their um aversion to fairness causes you harm which is one of the worst things in the world because it's not something under your control. They have the power, even if they choose um, not to hire you, or even if they choose to keep it. And there's, and that pushback, that boulder you were talking about, Kim is really, really needed in that case, but maybe in in terms of power dynamics, not the person who's seeking um, employment at that point that could actually do that. So the world, you know, sometimes makes me sad.
0: Yes. It does.
2: I, I'm glad that you tie those things together in your writing, Kim, because I think they're very closely tied. The unconscious bias, prejudice, and bullying. I think they're all they all sort of go hand in hand and one can sort of slide into the other. One can sort yeah. of shift prejudice can easily become bullying, uh, when it's when it's turns into action. You know, I think those three concepts are very, very closely tied together.
0: Yeah, I think that they that certainly. It's not like in McKinsey speak. This is, these are not messy things, mutually I- exclusive and collectively exhaustive. They they bleed one to another, and I think it's useful to sort of separate them out also, so that you can respond in a way that that kind of matches what you think you're noticing, and, uh, and and then you get some more information about what's really happening. Uh like for example, when you told the person the uh at at campus security, yeah, I was raised in Texas, like do they apologize and like did they realize their mistake? Then you kind of think maybe it's bias, or did they double down? I think um, there
2: being an apology. I think we just sort of moved right yeah. past
0: <laughs> yeah. one
2: yeah. Um, but yeah, on, on the unconscious bias side, I mean, one of the things we we stress in our trainings because when journalists hear the word bias, they automatically recoil because we're not supposed to be biased. That's like yeah. that's the an antithesis of what we're supposed to be. But I have to remind people like unconscious bias doesn't have to be bad. You know, unconscious bias can be I go to Target and I see someone with a red shirt and khakis and I think they work there, you know, and I go up and yeah. say, hey, you know, I, you know where, where do I find the hair products for my daughter? uh, the Kristen S stuff, you know, and, and I think I'm seeing, I'm talking to an employee and they don't have the name tags. I'm like, Oh, so Sorry. like that's not, that's not a, that's not a harmful unconscious bias to think that someone who dresses in red and khaki works at Target. Um, but it's just your brain making those connections. So I, I think that's one thing with, with reporters, you, you have to tell them, you know, bias is not necessarily negative or bad. It's just your brain making connections. And, and you, everybody does that. Everybody's kind of trying to, their brain is taking information and trying to, patch it together into a conclusion um so that's not the bad part it's when those unconscious biases right. start to affect the work in negative ways and in ways that, that disadvantage others
0: yeah Daniel no, we, Con- Kahneman. sorry go ahead wesley
1: i was gonna say the same thing system one <laughs> system two go for it
0: you go for it wesley <laughs>
1: I was just going to say that it's just thinking fast and slow is a really great book to really dissect this in terms of how your brain just quickly jumps to conclusions before you necessarily even realize it and how, if you are aware of those things and how you can't necessarily change it, but if you can find the time to slow down, or if you understand and think about how things are affecting you consciously, then um, you can at least mitigate any harms with bias. But I also wanted to say about, your story, I'm really curious about when you wrote it, because you, it was like an aha moment afterwards where it's just kind of stuck with you when you put it in print and you put it out into the world, what kind of feedback and what kind of responses did you get?
2: I remember my dad being really proud that I wrote it. I think he, he's always uh, been an advocate for my writing, anything that I've ever written that was personal or that, that, you know, has a connection to some stuff that actually happens. Uh, I think he really connects with, um, I remember, yeah, I got, I got feedback from people on campus saying mostly just like sympathize, like, Oh wow, that's messed up. And I was like, is it though? I don't know. Like, I don't, I don't feel any personal harm. I just thought it was a weird moment and worth writing about. Um, and I think the headline was very, you know, very provocative, like, you know, a, night, a snowy night leads to racism or something, <laughs> it was something like oh, it was a little strong. Um, uh, but you know, I, uh, but I, I remember the feedback being very sympathetic. I don't remember I don't remember getting any hate mail or anybody you know thinking that I didn't have a point about it. <laughs> and my writing tends to be pretty kind. <laughs> I, I, I was giving You're the gentle. person every benefit of the doubt, of like, well, maybe he meant this, and or maybe he didn't. You know, I, I don't think I was. I went on the attack. That's not really my style. So um, I think it was more like, hey, this weird thing happened. I don't know what to make of it.
0: Yeah, and there's so many, there's so many strange and inaccurate associations that go along with having an accent. Like I remember one time when I was in college, I I got a job in Paris, France, at a clothing store and summer job. And some American tourists walked in and they're like, oh, you have such a good accent. Uh, thinking I was French. And I felt so proud of myself, you know, when it was, a ridiculous, it was a ridiculous. Yes, I do. It was a ridiculous <laughs> moment of pride. I'm like, well, I grew up in the States. And so I think that there's, but what, like, and why would I have felt proud of it? Like it's, it's absurd, but, the but or, you know, and, and then on the flip side, because I, I grew up in, in Memphis, in the South. And I went to college in the North. And when I got there, I felt stupid all the time because of my Southern accent. And then I started dating a guy and he came home to visit. And we were, we went to the swimming pool and there were a bunch of kids at the swimming pool as there are in Memphis. And, um, and he looked at me and he said, oh, the kids have a Southern accent, too. And I'm like, what do you think? <laughs> People are born with a Northern accent and then they learn to speak Southern? Like, but but the, the, the sort of assumptions we make about it, and even intelligent, this guy was not a dumb guy, you know, uh, it, the, the assumptions that we make about accents are wrong um, and sort of funny, but also not funny when they have, when they have uh, an impact.
2: Absolutely.
1: I just want to say one thing is that I am also proud of you, Omar, for writing that piece and to put, putting yourself out there. Um, And I think people every day do this on social too, and they get huge backlash uh, about how they were overreacting or they're too sensitive because people don't have that same experience. But I I just wanted to take a moment to acknowledge, even though you thought it was a light lift, I thought it was, um, or, I, I thought it, it's admirable to, to even feel like i need to share this because it is something that affected me and so um hopefully someone read it also that also can relate to it to the point where they can feel less alone
2: oh that's, that's certainly why i wrote it i wanted people to be aware that, that these things kind of happen even if they're not harmful or that i didn't really take it very personally but i find myself a lot in right in writing just that's how i process things that's how i examine things that's how i know figure out how i feel about something is to write about it so that that's always been even from a young age that I was doing that. So I think I must've been 20, 21 when when I wrote that. So like I've always done that. Just that's how I figure out how I'm feeling about stuff.
0: Yeah. That is the great thing about writing is it helps you process your own emotions. And as Wesley said, it helps other people feel less alone, other people who are like you, and it helps people who haven't been on the receiving end of that kind of bias slash prejudice to know that it happens and to know what it feels like. It builds empathy in the world. So uh, I also am very happy that you wrote that story because I think it, it puts a little light out into the world.
2: Thank you. Yeah. That's why I do what I do. It's why I love my job still after all these years.
0: Well, thank you so much for sharing that story and for joining us on the podcast. It's been a great conversation.
1: Yeah. And I if so people wanted it. to follow up, where can they find you online? Omar. Well, I, I don't
2: know how long Twitter is in this for this <laughs> world, but <laughs> I'm still on Twitter at Omar g, just omarg just o m a r g. Uh I'm I'm I write a lot for the website Level, which is at levelmag.com. Uh, it's a website kind of geared toward African-American men in their 30s and 40s. Somehow I got sucked into Writing for this site and I love it. They they really are great to work with. Their
1: editors wonderful. So I write a lot for
2: them. I write for Wired. So I'm I'm easy to find online. <laughs> just Google my name, I'm, I'll come up.
1: Blue Sky Threads.
2: I'm on Threads. I'm I haven't really used. I don't really use them very much. I'm on them. I don't. Nope. I've, I've posted like maybe three times on Threads. I posted a limerick <laughs> on Threads <laughs> and just left it there. Like see ya. Uh, so I I don't know what to make of this new social media landscape. I'm trying to keep up, but I'm also very exhausted. I'm
1: very tired. <laughs> That's awesome. And if you want to reach us, you can email us at hello at justworktogether.com. And we would love to hear your story, your feedback, and just your general thoughts of any time that you felt othered or you othered someone else. Uh, So thank you for joining us. Thank you so much. This was great. I appreciate it.
0: Thanks so much. Take care.